Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rounding the Earth podcast. You know, by this point, people who've been watching the show for a while could probably recite what I'm about to say verbatim. So I figured I, at this point, I'm saying it for the new folks. And happily enough, there are a lot of new folks. So welcome to everybody who is joining us, perhaps for your first time. What is Rounding the Earth? Well, it is a multimedia education project based on the popular newsletter series published on Substack, written by applied statistician and educator Matthew Crawford. We're going to meet him in a second. Topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom to Bitcoin and banking implosions and everything in between, in particular, the ongoing plandemonium. Our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Locals, Substack, and Rumble to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I am a musician, singer-songwriter, writer-slash-editor coming at you live today here from the sunny slopes of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. And please allow me to introduce the man himself, none other than the author of Rounding the Earth, the spheroidal earther, my co-host for the podcast, Matthew B. Crawford? It is a B in the middle. Okay. And you know what's terrible about that? Um, there, there's the author, there's this uh, author of, um, oh, what is it? Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the names of his books now. He, he's a very good author, and and this is just sort of a brain fart that I'm not remembering. Um, but uh, his name is Matthew B. Crawford, and he puts the B on his books. Right. But he has two T's in his name. And and because of that, for years, and I mean going back like 15 years, um, I've I've gotten emails from him at times. For him, like directed to him. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and it wouldn't surprise me if he's gotten some directed to me because – um, you know, the reason I, you know, I, I, I wrote textbooks way back when, you know, uh, starting, uh, 18 ish years ago. Right. Well, um, I, I, I know this because if you Google rounding the earth and we're getting better at our SEO, I've been working on our website, which I'll, I'll share more directly with the audience, uh, later, but if you look, it brings up our, uh, our our info panel, whatever they call it. And also Matthew Crawford right here is the author running the earth, but that's not you. Nope, that is not me. That's the yeah, actually, I, I don't even think that's that's the, the author that I'm talking about. Well, apparently he's written books. your book. Those are my books. And that is your art of problem solving and your Twitter. <laughs> so anyway... Um, we're going to have to have uh, him or maybe this other guy as well on for a discussion at some point. <laughs> but speaking of discussions today, we have a, a crowd favorite quickly becoming a world favorite. Um, let's bring on our, our good friend, JJ Cooey. How are you? <laughs> you don't like that intro? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not comfortable with that intro, but that's okay. Um, I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. <laughs> Man, well, so how would you prefer to be introduced? I know these are these are rapidly changing times, and we got to adjust that, to them. Um, I hope that people see that uh, I am simply a um, sharer of information, and the information that I'm recently sharing has resulted in people hearing my name. That's it. Um, and so, the more people that hear the information, it could also be that 
some people associate my name to it, but in reality, they should be associating people like David Baltimore and Vincent Rancid Yellow with it because they invented the technology upon which most of RNA virology is based on. And that's all I'm really saying. I'm just pointing out something we should have known a long time ago. They even invented you. They built you in a lab. And now, well, um, I'm going to share this with the audience just because uh, I sent this to JJ earlier and it's just totally fun. But this is a uh, steampunk JJ that we're introducing for the first time here. And <laughs> uh, this is the, this is uh, this is what artificial intelligence can do. But I, I want you to notice <clears throat> JJ's uh, JJ has like an extra finger on his right hand or something. Like he has one like coming out of the base of his, or, you know, I don't know, like the, the middle of his palm or something like that. Yeah, so, that's weird. Know, um, you know, the, the artificial intelligence art, it's getting okay. It's getting pretty good. I mean, that's a fun steampunk JJ, I right? Can I can do it. But you know what? It, if, if, if the artificial intelligence can't keep a sixth finger from growing out of JJ's palm, then I doubt that it can find the right medicine for a novel pathogenic agent. Ooh. Scandalous. I said, I said it. Are you suggesting that the domain, um, the domain thing that was like run by Ditra or whoever mm -hmm. and put together to select uh, all kinds of stuff, um, just happened to be on the scene at the right time? Or uh, what, what are you saying? Uh, Interesting. I, I'm just saying that, uh, that, uh, and, and, and I'm somebody, um, before I switched careers in 2003. The last thing that I was doing on Wall Street was building uh, artificial intelligence algorithms. So that, that's certainly not up-to-date knowledge from the last 20 years, but it's enough that I've been able to follow. And as it is that uh, artificial intelligence claims kind of ramped up so quickly over the years, um, you know, I, 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 I've been able to think through and have very serious doubts about what the claims are. And in particular, um, I actually I actually studied something called uh, Lyapunov exponents uh, when I was. <clears throat> uh, this was math that was right up my alley. And a Lyapunov, the least Lyapunov exponent, is something that would be like the smallest difference between an actual function, meaning like a, a human utility function. Like, what are JJ's actions going to be right now as he sits with us? Is he going to put his finger over his mouth? Is he going to interject? and offer some other pearl of wisdom, uh, you know, what, what will JJ's actual actions be? You could have an artificial intelligence machine try to simulate that, but the least Lyapunov exponent would show a difference. And nobody has ever shown that there's anything like um, an artificial intelligence that, that makes that least Lyapunov exponent get close to vanishing, which is to say that not even for a simple conversation, I mean, you know, we could have a chat over tea and, and the artificial intelligence machine could not predict what we were going to say, not even for the first 30 seconds, not even close. So the idea that an artificial intelligence machine could predict what was going to work, you know, given the genome of some novel pathogen, maybe even pre-genome, gosh, when was it that domain was supposedly run? Was that before the genome was even out for SARS-CoV-2? Do we know the let's let's break this down? I, I want to do this the whole show. This is fabulous. Um, 
So the, the, the thing that I've just recently discovered with Mark's help and a few other people's help is that the Washington one case that is the Sohomish County man who was a traveler, came back to Washington. None of his family got sick. He didn't have a fever, but he decided to go to the hospital anyway. And then they they paraded him out on the on the media as a dude that they could culture from four passages of an isolate, which became the basis for the PCR test. And it also became the basis for a three-dimensional structure of the spike protein, which was published in February of 2020 by a guy by the name of Wiesler at the University of, of Washington right next door to where this patient happened. And it's interesting because that guy did protein modeling before 2019 and then converted to modeling virus proteins in 2019 under the encouragement and funding of Bill Gates. So then the first case in America that's used by the CDC to justify the sequence, that's used to justify the generation of the PCR amplicon or, or primer sets, and is used to give the first the first um, a compassionate use of remdesivir was that man, even though he didn't have any symptoms and he didn't get really sick. So this was all orchestrated right at that same time. And now imagine that that structural data that was crucial to creating this data set that could be fed into domain was ready and ready to go or the 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 sort of chain of events that would lead to an infection that caused a culture that could bring a sequence that would be very close to the original one, only three non-synonymous or three synonymous mutations away from Wuhan. And then not only could it be cultured, but then, and not could you get that sequence, but you had a guy waiting there to take that sequence, make a model of it so that we could justify that, that there was data to feed into the domain server. It all happened in the same place. It's very, very curious because the people who ended up finding remdesivir on the domain server are the same people that have pushed it for Ebola and pushed it for other things in the past. So it's very good observation. While I have it, can I, can I just show you guys this, uh, this video in their own words? Can we hear what Ditra yes. says about domain? Let's do it. Let me know if you can hear this. Vulnerability of the joint force and it. the nation to emerge. The COVID-19 pandemic has called attention to the vulnerability of the joint force and the nation to emerging biological threats. The long history of advances in the field of medical countermeasures has produced vast amounts of knowledge. The transmission, symptoms, and diagnosis of diseases and the effects of medicines on the body. But when developing new countermeasures for new threats, the manual analysis of toxicological profiles and diseases to identify candidates for clinical trials can prove too long a process when lives are at stake. In 2019, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency's Chemical and Biological Technologies Department, in its role as the Joint Science and Technology Office, invested in an initiative for the discovery of medical countermeasures against novel entities that use simulation, machine learning, and predictive tools to quickly identify, screen, and evaluate FDA-approved drug candidates for new pharmaceutical applications, serving as a force multiplier and allowing the rapid exploration of a multitude of potential drugs before human efficacy trials. Learn more about how the Domain Initiative is finding new medical countermeasures to combat novel entities in JSTO in the news.
Wow. Yeah, so 2019, in fact, December 2019, I know this because of Mark Husatonic, he, uh, it's December 2019, they come out with this initial document sort of announcing this thing, but but Mark points out, there's no way this just started then, this was classified until then, uh, I, so it's unclear how long the domain project had been, you know, getting rolled out or getting set up for this event. Um, I do know I'm reading, speaking of this pile of books I brought, Lies My Government Told Me by Dr. Robert Malone. And we could talk about this forever, but he mentions that he was part of this program. What he doesn't do is name the program. So just some, just some interesting observations there. But he's mentioned it before. And in fact, um, in his interviews, he often says it like he'd been working there for a while because Michael Callahan thought to just call him and say spin his team up, right? And by what when he said spin my team up, he meant spin your your domain team up on this new pathogen, as I understand it. Yeah, I suppose it's possible he was simply referring to his team at Alchem if Alchem was already doing work like this. But no, no, no because he it. does say it. He does say it in an interview. He says that it was because he was working for this program that screened repurposed FDA approved drugs. There's no and question. Matthew Matthew's point is something about that doesn't make a lot of sense if their argument relies on this was artificial intelligence running this thing. And I'll just say I, I'm right now uh, going through a uh, a 325 page uh, disclosure from the Public Health Agency of Canada where they're going through talking about ivermectin and mostly discussing how to shut people up about it. But the way they talk about it doesn't jive with what they just described in this domain video. This idea that we're it, we need to move quick. We need to use sort of we need to be cautious in the direction of using something as opposed to avoiding the use of something because of lack of human efficacy data. So right, right. there's when a caution standard mean, applied across the board. <clears throat> when caution means uh, run some sort of large scale, very large scale experiment um that uh, you know that's getting weird that's uh, to me this this like domain looks on face like a giant psyop like a giant yeah. man psyop let's play uh, I mean, let's play devil's advocate for a second and say okay so the people at domain should be able to tell us what protein data they put in they should tell us what what data and aspects of that protein data are then used to select from the background of presumably hundreds of thousands of potential substances these are all things that could at least be explained on a cursory level and haven't at yeah, all and look you know whatever it is that they decide is used in the end if, if you have if you have a machine that that you believe spits out goes doo -doo 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 -doo, and spits out like you know the ultimate drug i mean first of all the fact that it's a drug that exists out of all the infinitely many drugs that it could say hey this is going to work against this particular pathogen um the fact that it exists actually is pretty interesting. Like, like that shouldn't happen now. Okay. Okay. Nearer the field to one that exists. Okay. What are the odds that one exists? Okay. What are the odds that one exists and you still don't know enough about the spike protein to warn everybody from the start, do not put this in the vaccine. For All example, at once that's not another example is to say that why would you pick remdesivir then because it doesn't interfere with the spike protein at all it interferes with the replication of the virus it's a very different mechanism and so it's interesting that the domain server would spit out a nucleoside analog prodrug along with a couple of drugs that were 
involved in interfering with fusion um, and know the difference between those mechanisms and still be able to select them. That's that to me already stinks to high and, and the fact that it, that it would interfere with viral replication pick a, a drug so expensive that it could not be used really at the antiviral stage right like everything about this is nonsense from beginning to end everything absolutely, absolutely. i mean it, it the idea that that what rose to the top um are compounds that are almost completely unrelated to one another also suggests a ridiculous level of accuracy, right? Wouldn't there be a lot of compounds related to remdesivir that would have tested about the same in this simulation? Wouldn't there be a bunch of compounds like hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine that would test the same and they could show us this? Right. But instead, it's like four random balls that all happen to spell bingo? I don't know. I think and, and you know what? <clears throat> we have the Surgisphere debacle to compare this to. You know, let, let's talk about Surgisphere for a moment, because pretty much everyone in the in the known universe at this point accepts that Surgisphere was just a giant. It's uh, lunchtime on the Enterprise. I've got to eat my gruel, if that's do okay. It. Oh, okay. yeah, go ahead. Um, your, your gruel made by the replicator? <laughs> um, so <clears throat> Surgisphere was this paper put out by this, uh, sorry, Surgisphere was this company uh, run by a guy named Sepin Desai. And uh, he partnered up with uh, Mara Mehta, uh, I believe, uh, who was at Harvard and at um, you know, Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. And <clears throat> they supposedly had this database. Um, somehow they were able to get patient data very quickly from all over the world, all six continents, uh, such an enormous amount of data that they could uh, judge whether or not hydroxychloroquine was working. And, um, you know, many, many of us saw that paper uh, on, on, you know, some, many of us on day one. Uh, actually, uh, I, I went for a walk with Amanda, or uh, Amanda and I started, you know, talking about this. I said, Amanda, you have to look at this paper. This has to be a fraud. This has like there. This is such nonsense. And she said, "Okay, let's go for a walk." She and and you know we start we start walking. She's like, "Okay, you know why is this a fraud?" And and you know I start telling her about it. And and she I, I don't think I, I had convinced her immediately, but we you know we we start going through the paper and looking at things. And but she has to go to work, so I start communicating with other people. And very quickly, we're just finding all kinds of problems um, with this paper. Just the statistics look like there's something that are made up. But but let, let's talk about the artificial intelligence aspect of it for a moment. Um, <clears throat> the fact of the matter is Surgisphere was supposed to be sort of a first of its kind analysis and tool, right? And, and it turns out that the only way that they could push this thing forward was what looks like, <clears throat> I, say, I say looks like, a giant fraud. And no, no, I mean, people use the word fraud all the time talking about it and nobody's suing, right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know? I think that's that's long past been litigated in the court of public. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, uh, th these are guys who they pulled off of Twitter, they pulled out of public conversation about it. And, you know, even their statement was like, you know, it, it, it almost like their statement, depending on how you read the the grammar of it almost looks as if not one of them ever had access to the data, which almost makes it 
which almost looks like an admission that somebody had handed it to them. And this is part of why it is that, that a lot of artificial intelligence is currently involved in PSYOP level type stuff, right? Weren't they actually, weren't, wasn't one of the products that they were selling simulated data sets? So they were taking regular data sets and using an AI to increase the numbers and make them a realistic increase. Yeah, which is which is totally silly because if what you're doing is basing it on a data set that you can already run through your rubric, you know, to test for biomedical studies, to then use that as the basis for a simulation is basically like, I mean, th that's total fabrication. That's p hacking, um, you know, because you're basing it on, on on the data that you already have. It's not new data, right? So. I mean, th there's so many problems with this, and I want I want the audience to understand um, that, like this, the discussions of what we're being told AI can do have gone out of control. They've really they've been out of control for years, but we have I, like we we should have been having more public conversation about it. Now, a few uh, weeks ago, um, I, you know, this isn't one of my more popular articles, but it should be. Um, because because of the level of importance to relate to this topic, there is something called the infinite monkey theorem, and this is something that um, that I um, when when a few months ago JJ uh, was you know was introducing to me the idea that uh, look you know it's actually very very hard to find to create like a viral a stable viral swarm. And I was thinking this through while I was on a trip um, out hiking um, Carlsbad uh, Caverns uh, up and down, just on just on a little vacation. And I was thinking about this idea, and I was thinking, oh, this really applies to that argument. It also applies to artificial intelligence, and and I want people to think about this. This is this theorem basically says you're never going to have monkeys at a typewriter write Shakespeare. And the reason is, is that just one Shakespeare play, you know, the, the, the number of, you know, getting to uh, 22,500 or so words, the number of times you're going to have to have the monkeys type that far out is approximately 10 to the 300th power. Now, we as humans, we don't do a good job at comparing very large numbers, right? A lot of people can't fathom the difference between a hundred million dollars and a billion dollars, certainly not a billion and a trillion. It's just, it's more money than they have the capacity to think about on a practical basis. Now you get into numbers like the number of atoms in the known universe, right? Is that anywhere near 10 to the 300,000th power? No, it's much, much smaller. In fact, if you take the number of atoms in the known universe and multiply them by themselves, it's still not even close. Do that again and again and again, 10,000 times over. Not even the number of grains of sand on the beach, the number of atoms in the known universe is many powers of 10 smaller than this. So the idea of computationally going through all the potential genomes with brute force that's one word i like to hear one phrase i like to use a lot because it's implying brute force we're just going to do it until we figure it out and even even if you can do better than brute force and we can we can do better than brute force 
sure, we could toss out some some sequences with like random stop codons. And 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 you know, JJ, you, you know, you you may know more about this than I do. Like where like uh, there may be things like stop codons, you know, in places in a genome that just couldn't happen. Uh, it, I don't know, but e even if even if we started to take strands and say only one in a thousand of these ten nucleotide sequences, you know, could work, um, you're still not you're still not pulling out that many powers of ten relative to the overall thing because there, if you know if we have four different nucleotides that we could put at thirty thousand positions, let's say, for this positively charged single stranded M uh, RNA virus. Um, four to the 30th power is about 10 to the four to the 30,000th power is about 10 to the 18,000th power. And if we can pull out, you know, 3,000 powers of 10 or something like that, uh, sorry, not 9,000 powers of 10, even if we really restrict the sequences in the genome, like, uh, like I was saying, um, you know, just, uh, 0.1% out of every th uh, thousand, then, uh, you know, we're still going to have thousands of powers of 10, like 9,000 powers of 10 left over. The amount of computing power that you would need to work on this is so enormous. And we don't, and, and as far as we know, the only genomes that are stable in present day ecosystem are the ones that are there. And sure, there may be trillions of different viruses and virus clouds, but you've got to understand in the grand universe, it's like looking at the asteroid belt out of the entire universe and going, there's only that much that actually works in a stable way. And so for people to start saying, oh, I can pinpoint what these are using this AI machine. No, either you can pinpoint where these are without the AI machine, or you can get in the ballpark, like a really good ballpark, or it's not really AI. Like there, there, there's something wrong here, you know, with the story. Yeah, the well, method, to be fair, the they do use two from one another. They, they, I noticed in that video, they actually, I don't think even used the term artificial intelligence at any point. They used machine learning and then another variation on the term. So yeah, they didn't there a bit. The, like basically, artificial intelligence is like a couple of methods and then powered as, as much as possible. Right. There's machine learning and there's genetic algorithms, and then you just throw a bunch of computing power behind it. There's nothing, there's really nothing that much new over the past two decades, except the fact that we got to chess and then we got to go. And, and just for anybody watching, go is not nearly at the level of complexity of one single virus genome. It's many, many leaps ahead of that, that we're talking about. And for there to have been a drug in the catalog and for the AI machine to have narrowed down on this one drug that had never worked for anything before, by the way, um, it, it, the absurdity, you know, it's, it's like, you know, watching a person, you know, blindfolded, having a casual conversation, you know, splitting an arrow from 30 yards away over and over and over and over again. There's some point at which you go, somebody's, somebody's playing a joke on me. This is Penn and Teller hour. You know, this is not real <laughs> archery going on here. Did, do we know if um, the domain server recommended remdesivir before or after the Snohomish County man in Washington? I was going to ask you that. What What's the timeline? What are the dates on this? Um, shit, I don't know. Um, I know that Washington One was a New England Journal of Medicine paper. And I know that Michelle 
Whole Shoe is an author on that, and she worked for the CDC and was a Ebola nurse in 2014 and just happened to be the nurse treating that patient um, and is the first author, I believe, on that paper. So there's a lot of really interesting things that come very tightly together in that paper in uh, on Washington One, the sequence that gets used to start the pandemic. Um, I also heard a rumor today that the this is something that maybe your friend could get on a little bit, or we could ask Kevin McKernan to do it. Um, I have heard a rumor that the Washington One sequence, and in comparison to the next 10,000 sequences in America, there is no one that is related to that sequence. There's no, they're all a few mutations ahead of him. So although he's cited as the first case, he didn't pass it to anyone else in the hospital and anyone else in his family. No one else got sick. And yet they they compassionately retreated him as the first patient with remdesivir and used the purported sequence that was cultured, which requires a lot more virus than just positivity, was cultured, passage four times, and used as the isolate that defines the, the pandemic in, in 2020. It's a very, very curious case. Um, I don't have, I didn't bring up the paper, but I, I can. Um, Washington. I'd be curious to see it. Yeah, you're right about the tight, the tight turnaround on, on the, the timing here. It's very difficult to uh, pin down at a glance. Here, I'll send you a link of the, of the um, thingy, my Bobby in the chat here. And, and with respect to remdesivir, if, if domain could um, somehow identify the fact that remdesivir would interact well with this brand new virus sequence, like, like it, you have the sequence and then boom, you can spit out a drug that works. Okay. Um, well, could it possibly also tell you that a modification of that drug would be better, right? Like if it can predict the interaction, maybe it could predict a way to make the drug safer because this was already understood to be a difficult drug for people to take. And, and, and Robert Malone has written a substack on how it is that, that remdesivir is toxic. So, you know, this is somebody who's not defending remdesivir at this point, or at least as of sometime in 2022. I'm just pulling up. Sorry, this is uh, someone uh, who was a Jongin SF in our Rumble chat brought this very excellent timeline by Markulai Husatonic up, and this should clarify the timeline for us. Um, if I can make it a little easier to see. I mean, if you just read this paper, I mean, it's just extraordinary, right? The, it's like a story out of a book and it's a joke. So on January 19th, 2020, a 35-year-old man presented to an urgent care clinic in Snohomish County, Washington, with a four-day history of cough and subjective fever. On checking into the clinic, the patient put on a mask in the waiting room. After waiting 20 minutes, he was taken into an examination room and went under evaluation by a provider. 
He disclosed that he had returned to Washington State on January 15th after traveling to visit family in Wuhan, China. The patient stated that he had a, seen a health alert from the CDC about a novel coronavirus break in China and because of his symptoms and recent travel, decided to see a medical health care provider. The patient examination revealed a body temperature of 37.2, which is incredibly normal, blood pressure of 34 over 87, beats of 110 per minute, oxygen respiratory rate of 16 breaths per minute, and 96 oxygen saturation. They tested him for influenza A, B, and all everything else, parainfluenza, RSV, rhinovirus, adenovirus, and the four common corona strains known to cause illness in humans with no citation, no evidence, no test used, no molecular data, no methodology, no brand name of the test, nothing. They just say that a nasopharyngeal swab specimen was obtained and sent for detection by NAAT, which is just garbage. If Where did they send it to? Nobody says you don't see it. There's nothing here. It's just you have to take our word for it. We didn't find anything. Specimens are collected, and then they, they're able to do a reverse transcriptase assay and dry cough. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. This is just we, we stopped the whole party for this guy who just had a sore throat. It's really pretty shocking. And it, what's more important to realize here is that it is this sequence from which the, the original paper, the most cited paper of coronavirus of the, of the whole pandemic that came out in 2020 by Wiesler's lab that shows the three-dimensional structure of the spike protein, identifies the fear and cleavage site, and publishes the, the ACE2 receptor as being the target, the likely target of the virus. So this paper most assuredly is important because Wiesler is also quoted in a newspaper about the lockdowns and about what's coming. And he's also the one of the first guys to have a protein-based vaccine ready to go as a candidate. Um, this all happens in Washington state in a matter of weeks um, and maybe even days. Uh, the sequence is found, the sequence is published, the sequence is distributed to people to run tests. The um, and then I guess this is fed into the domain server. I'm really curious if the domain server. Oh, yeah, it is. There it is. It says January 9th, the domain server comes before the Snohomish County man. So it actually is the domain server spitting it out that is used to justify the the, the compassionate use of Remdesivir on the Snohomish County man. That's shocking. Yeah, yeah. Just, just to be to put an asterisk, it looks as though this January 9th date is estimated. I'm not sure how Mark got that, but I I think it's intentional that he put it before the Snohomish County man. I think he makes the same argument as you. Yes. I I think that he probably has more of a reason to estimate it came before that. And remember, Snohomish County man is two weeks later. So let's let's think about what Malone has said about when Callahan called him. And I think Callahan called him early in January, not late. Yeah, January 4 might be the date. See, yep. So if he called him on January 4th, then I don't think that's a very bad estimation at all, in fact. Right. Okay, so now let's take a step back. 
why let's say that you let's say that I'm wrong. Let's say that I'm wrong and artificial intelligence has been pushed so forward so fast that I just that I I just could not fathom it. I'm I'm not an expert and I'm not I'm not an expert in artificial intelligence. I've you know, I I, I did a little tooling around with uh with some models uh 20 years ago. Um may, maybe it's further along than I imagine, but if it is if it is um why did we never see anyone use this tool in the past as in okay we have uh, all these different um illnesses that we lump together as uh influenza like illness all these things that that we lump together as the common cold right why did no one ever go well look let's at least decide what foods might be good for people experiencing these things because there are lots of foods that have you know these uh you know that are zinc ionophores that have these antiviral properties people who cook with uh curcumin yeah you know it's suggested that uh, a lot of the um spices that indian people use when uh you know masala spices um i get uh, I guess that's redundant. Masala means spice, but um, the, the, the masala, uh, it, it, these are actually like hundreds, if I understand correctly, hundreds of different herbs that are just grown all over India and people use whatever the ones are that are grown locally for them to make their curry, right? And, and it turns out that a lot of these seem to be medically beneficial as in, um, and, and that's, that's probably at least partially why they're used and have been used for so long, right? Um, some of these are zinc ionophores, you know, curcumin stands out because I, I, I know that I've read about that one specifically. Um, so, you know, what, why is it that we never had even a hint of the application of this technology before? What data sets was it trained on? You know, where did we have the kind of information of who was and who wasn't using this? This would be a huge big data operation you would really need pools of people from all over the world submitting data to have confidence to, you know, to, to get anywhere with something like this. Where, where was that going on? And, and, and why was it that it was just, you know, in the works, in the works, in the works, boom, January of 2020, we decide that it works right as we're, we need to roll something out for this coronavirus. Does not make sense. You have, no testing, no no method for determining that you've trained your data set well. Hmm. It would have to be in, is so hypothetical as to be completely irresponsible. But I, I, I totally agree. I think that this is really, it is a story that is so simply told that I have this AI that 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 does X, Y, and Z like in that video. And so I just plugged in some data from the coronavirus and it spit out these four drugs and it's pretty extraordinary story it really is i mean i i'm so happy that we're highlighting it right now because so many of the people that are involved with pushing the remdesivir out early and are involved in its sustained presence on the protocol are people that pushed its testing early on for lots of things have given talks about possible universal antiviral drugs and pushed this one repeatedly for, for almost two decades now. 
Um, we're coming on on two decades almost, I think, but really a decade for sure since 2014. Now, I, 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 I want to say this real quick. This also flies in the face of the other forms of research into how to attack these viruses. For example, small peptide inhibitors. You know, if, if like, did you train this machine but completely ignore something like, you know, small protein inhibitors? Okay, if you did, why? Why was that left out? If, you're, if your machine is so advanced that it's like leaping beyond stuff that we could have tested previously, why would we get, not, you know, and, and meanwhile, the Chinese are testing small protein inhibitors, right? They've continued that research. Um, so they don't believe it. And we're told that they're beginning to rival us in artificial intelligence research. I think art artificial intelligence research simply just hasn't gone much of anywhere beyond, hey, we can brute, brute force things more and maybe, you know, throw a little chess principles in so that you can beat chess and beat Go and throw some principles in, but otherwise it's still just more power. Yeah, we've alluded to the fact that there were a couple of drugs that spat out, but I'm not sure we've specifically listed them. So I just want to make sure we do that now. So one of the first drugs was remdesivir. Uh, another candidate was famotidine, which is the one that Malone then took and ran with, an anti-heartburn drug marketed by Johnson & Johnson as Pepsid. Uh, and then and he got a $20.7 million contract to do that. Um, and then select Celeste, Selicobix, I don't know, sold by Pfizer under the name Celebrex to treat arthritis and Mectizan, Merck's brand of ivermectin. So those are the four, I think, yeah, four, five drugs that it spat out, four drugs. Um, yeah, I think that's got to be one of the central myths of the pandemic for sure. And I think that you're right in identifying it as such. Um, I think that one of the ways to try and think about it for me, I thought about it this way before was trying to make a computer program that could take and put together a hundred piece jigsaw puzzle based on the outlines and, and, and shapes that are on the puzzle. But then now imagine that you throw it in a hundred thousand pieces from other puzzles with the same size, shape, whatever, and then make it sort that out, which is, I don't understand how they, in, how do they enter drugs into this database? Does it then make a 3D model that includes polarity and flexibility? Um, is it a 3D model of proteins that's different from 3D models of chemicals? And then how do they model the chemicals interaction with 3D proteins like a ribosome or, a, or an RNA dependent RNA polymerase? And how good are those models? And what, what's, what's the data that's feeding this AI. And the more we talk about it, the more angry I get. Yeah. And I think the reason it, it, it makes you angry is because there, there's this story about it being used that if it were true, it would skip past all these other things that we should have seen before it, right? If the computer could, could pr predict all of these, I mean, you know, picking out one drug, usually, usually, even uh, even applying best theoretics, we need to test a drug empirically. No one has ever suggested otherwise, right? That we wouldn't test a drug empirically to see, you know, which strings of the giant harpsichord of, of you know, human biology are going to be plucked in exactly how, because there's always stuff that, that isn't expected. You know, uh, the, the the human system is so complex 
we are not, we, you know, we are talking about Shakespeare, right? The beauty of the human machine is Shakespeare and then some. And to, to, to even suggest that, uh, that, you know, that we could make this leap from not having any intermediate steps, not even like in the past, um, you know, no, uh, you know, uh, let's bring up uh, toxins because uh, I had another interaction with uh, Tao Braun recently that made me, you know, think about, you know, the, the pharma has these huge toxin databases, like, you know, 20,000 toxins in a database. They have several of these and, and they test these um, to see how perturbing the human system might help. Uh, it, it's funny because this is the same industry that, that poo poos, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, like, like, here's like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't uh, know. I remember. Sorry. Um, I just put up a, uh, put up a comment that threw me for a minute. Yeah. Houstonics in the chat. Hey, Mark. Uh, he says it was probably just five lines of code with hard coded output. That's a really uh, good AI. And, and this is happening during the same month that over at Imperial College in the UK, a completely fake project was run where, where this researcher said, Hey, I can predict, you know, how fast the spread is and how many people probably have this virus already in China using, using this code, which turned out to be code that had previously been tried to be applied to influenza, but had never really worked prior previously, if I understand correctly. Oh, this right. is Neil Ferguson, by the way, is this guy's yeah. name over, over yeah. at Imperial College. Um, and, and, you know, that was deemed just total nonsense when people looked into it and people even tried to like put the same data in multiple times and didn't even get consistent output. That's the most, that was the most amazing thing that somebody analyzed it and it looked like seven different coders had used a set of crappy code to begin with and didn't change it, just kind of glommed crap on and it created a code that couldn't produce the same results. <laughs> That's amazing. So the idea of this is leaping many, many years, I would say probably many eras ahead, if this level of artificial intelligence is even possible. But I would argue that it is simply not. Um, the, the level that you have to sculpt the pathway down is so much. And probably along several different vector lines, right? That I, I do not believe that that it's actually a, it, even possible to get there. But the idea that we just suddenly got there in January of 2020, I mean, why haven't we seen this technology applied in a thousand other ways since? Could apply it to Zika or to uh, monkeypox, or I know I'm asking after, I'm trying to think of a good example, but well, measles. Polio, anything as a test. Omicron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and Omicron has been really weird. The way people have handled that, right? That there, there's a lot of nonsense going around on around Omicron because we were told that we could make that, you know, we could design these vaccines now in a day or over a weekend. In fact, it wasn't just one company that designed their vaccine the same weekend that the genetic code was released. It was two. They both did it over the same weekend and a couple of days, a couple of days. And yet Omicron comes out and, you know, more than a year later, we don't 
we don't have uh, a vaccine that's specific to Omicron. Is that right? We still don't? No, we don't. Well, we do. We have a bivalent now that has something to do with Omicron, I think. Okay. So so maybe maybe after like eight months, something to do with, but, you know. I, what, but we have it late, right? They made it late. I mean, that, that variant that's in the bivalent is not present in the current circulating vat of variants, supposedly. It's a variant. No matter how you slice it. Right. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, crazy stuff. Um, I am curious. Uh, we titled this thing Investigating Hidden Bioweapons Programs. Do we want to take a slight turn? And uh, Matthew, what were you thinking when you uh, suggested that name? I can't remember. It, honestly, <laughs> like, it seems like there's so much stuff. Go there's so much stuff that feels like it's coming together. Yeah. Uh, from all of these conversations. Um, part of me wanted to talk about uh, Kevin McKernan's plasmid research. Oh, yeah, that's right. And, and I, I probably should have reached out to him to to grab him and pull him in, but it was really only in the last, like, uh, day or so. I, and, and for anybody watching, I'm, I'm currently building another company, so I, I've not had as much interaction time um, with, with JJ or Kevin or everybody else that I've talked with. But, uh, um, you know, we're, we're talking about bioweapons. Everybody's concerned about bioweapons. I, I'm worried that there is this meme that's being pushed at people. The vaccines are the bioweapon. Okay. The, you know, the virus or virus-like particles or clones or whatever made people ill. Well, that may be a bioweapon. It may be that the vaccines are bioweapon. I'm worried that there are even more, uh, uh, you know, and, and that may be part of the show. Right. Like, um, you know, JJ and I, you and you and I talked about this a bit. I, you know, we, we both worry about gene drive, you know, gene editing drives. Right. But then um, I, I feel like I've come across a little bit more literature. I haven't had time to do a deep dive, but just, you know, the idea that um, that the air could be seeded with dust like particles that could that could involve transfection. Is that the virus like particles? Can you tell us? You know, um, come back to the can you what, what can you tell us about virus-like particles and what they're capable of doing? Um, uh, well, I can tell you that virus-like particles are something that a lot of uh, research has been devoted to um, in the sense of trying to find uh, ways to package genetic material in a durable way akin to what a spore would be in a biological sense, um, they've they've known for a long time that there's something very interesting happening with things like um, with things like uh, anthrax, for example. Anthrax spores are very enticing from a weaponized perspective because they they present a possibility of storage and distribution, long-term usefulness that most RNA viruses don't have because of the way that their outer coat is. So if we just look at this one patent, I'll bring it up over here and put it on the other screen. Oops, that wasn't the right. <laughs> um, I want, what do I want? This one? I think this one? What am I doing here? Oh, yeah, that's right. This this would not go here. It would go up here, right? Yeah. So if we look at this, this is a patent um, on Phyloviruses, Ebola and Marburg are envelope viruses causing lethal hemorrhagic disease. 
The virins exist in a mixture of morphologies, including six prime and filamentous particle shapes. The filaments are, um, and the, so the uh, filament, if you don't know that a, a, um, a I'm just going to cut here, even though it's green. Um, they, the filament is, uh, the, the Ebola virus is a long, elongated, not a sphere, but it's an elongated particle. At least that's what they show. And so what this, what this patent is, is a chromographic, a thermostable chromographic, chromographically purified nano virus-like particle. And what they're doing is they're using chromatography and filtration to purify the shell of a, a phylovirus or a synthetic version of a phylovirus. And then they tell you the summary of the invention is here. And they talk about um, the invention can be provide a vaccine for Ebola and Marburg and other things. And further objective, object of the invention is to provide a method of preparation um, where um, can be lyophilized and produced as a powder. So that would be more like what you would do with an anthrax or anything. You would make a powder version of the the viral-like particle. Now, the curious thing about this is the people who are on this um, patent are Sina Bavari and I believe David Hone. Um, Sina Bavari, David Hone, two people that are old um, advisors of Robert Malone. David Hone used to stay on Robert Malone's couch um, when they were in college together. So there's a there's a certain aspect of this that I find very curious. Um, whoops, I got to cut over here and cut over here. That's what I wanted to do. <clears throat> because these guys, of course, were head of U.S. Amerit and head of DITRA at the year before the pandemic started. Sina Bavari quit and started his own company that now advises Gilad as far Gilead, as far as I know. And uh, these two guys have a patent on a very relevant idea, which is a virus-like particle, which is resistant to heat and can be aerosolized to carry DNA and, L and RNA um, in a transfection or transformation setting. So that's okay. really interesting. And, and if one of these can transfect a cell, then it can alter your DNA. In theory, yeah, absolutely, it, it could. I mean, if you, especially if it was if it was transforming to begin with, if it had DNA in it, um, for so, sure. I mean, this is this is really frightening sounding technology. I mean, like, do, do we even need gene editing drives? You know, like. Oh no, I think you do. I think you got to put the gene drive in a virus-like particle. That's the trick. Um, that's that's what and, I. Think. And, and this is where this is the application of CRISPR-Cas9. For example, yes, that's what you would be doing. You would use a gene drive with driven by CRISPR-Cas9 to edit somebody's. Uh, metabolism or something, you know, make them vulnerable, whatever you wanted to do. I, I don't know what's possible. I just know that a gene drive works and I know that a gene drive would fit in a virus like particle quite easy. Yeah. So and, and this is why I, I think it's important to actually follow the Jeffrey Epstein story yeah. without like the, the, like the, the media has this, like, you know, the tantalizing focus on his sexcapades, right? Um, and, and that's, that's gross stuff on its own, but let's remember that everything points to 
him being involved in likely blackmail and large-scale financial crimes, right? And in fact, uh, he was the centerpiece of one of the largest, one of the world's largest Ponzi schemes. I think it's like one of the, the three largest Ponzi schemes. And, and, and apparently he was the guy behind all of it and didn't go to jail for that. Is this has crossed my mind a lot that actually the pedophilia portion of the Epstein scandal is to distract from the much larger whale, which is the money portion. Right. And and the, for him, pedophilia was like, you know, he, he was probably a psychopathic pedophile. You know, he had these proclivities and he early on, he probably uh, found out how to use them as a tool. Right. And he got sucked up into very, you know certain financial circles at, at uh, you know, at a fairly young age um in early 20s and and he eventually he's working with uh leslie wexner right and i actually watched a really interesting video just last night um that was speculating that leslie wexner uh looks that what what uh it was it, it's, it's a weird speculative story but it's one that kind of makes sense um his brand was victoria's secret and yeah. Okay, is that a reference to Queen Victoria? Oh yeah, yeah. I've seen I've seen a video that goes into this as well. Yes. Yeah, and Queen Victoria, who was sort of the first, uh, the world's first selfie addict, had uh, twenty thousand photos made of her. Did a lot of posing for those photos. You know, is it possible that um, that at some point somebody got blackmail material on her because she liked, you know, perhaps she made some photos that would have been you know lurid or or whatever. Right. And and it, I, I've warned people for years. I actually have um, I, I'm going to be publishing an article soon where I have past essays that I've written or at least, you know, paragraphs from essays that talk about, you know, we need to pay attention to the fact that it appears that blackmail, bribery, extortion run the world. And why is it that it looks this way? Well, when you've got Jeffrey Epstein going back and forth between MIT, Harvard, uh, MIT Media Labs in particular, he was bringing funding of millions of dollars and MIT Media Lab and over, you know, just short walk away at Harvard. Um, those are the two places in the world where the lion's share of research has been done on gene editing drives. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're focused on the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which, you know, whatever was done there, that's not even bleeding edge research, right? The discussion is there, but it looks like a lot was done to push the discussion there and to push it away the actual centers of cutting edge research. I, yeah, I just want to clarify one thing. Les Wechner didn't found Victoria's Secret. He bought it from the founder. And I'm I'm fairly certain that name already um, had been picked. Now, keep in mind, all of this origin story could be uh, fabrication. Um but, well, and it could be that that he was handed off control of a blackmail scheme, right? Um, yeah, and you know another aspect of the uh, gene drive situation. As I was doing research into the effect of altruism, guys, um, everyone now should be familiar with open philanthropy, the Dustin Moskovitz uh, vehicle for effective altruism. Um, it, which has funded uh, 
all of the recent pandemic preparedness exercises and uh, biodefense and basically everything's scary. Um, and if you take a look at just a, a quick overview of their uh, donation recipients, you find uh, the same uh, MIT Media Lab, um, for example. But you might say, yeah, but they do other stuff um, than just gene editing. Yeah, but uh, <clears throat> um, an another series of grants given in this case to the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health are specifically for gene drive uh, um, development. And the interesting thing is it's always in the form of anti-malarial uh, efforts. So it's to combat mosquitoes, mosquito-borne viruses. And gene drives are used in this context to stamp out the mosquito population. But I see no reason why this couldn't apply to other or couldn't be then applied to other species um, and it's not just the one. There's uh, a number of grants along these lines, um, but that's the only one I had there. So um, there is multiple different ways in which these things cross over. Uh, gene drives do seem to keep coming up. Um, and that's the, not the something to be thing, excited about. <laughs> one of the extremely scary things about this, um, this proposed use of uh, gene drives with mosquitoes, they're talking about um, you know, having some mosquitoes released that would then change the population around them. Yes. Right. Like uh, imagine, imagine, um, these mosquitoes are humans. You have a population of humans not consenting to their, their ecosystem being changed. And yet when these mosquitoes enter the new population, they cause changes in the genomes of all the mosquitoes in order to make them infertile. And these are changes at the germ line. Yeah. It's, also, it's also very dangerous because um, CRISPR-Cas9 has off-target effects. So yes, you can send it to some place and it will find that place and it'll make, a, make an adjustment or an insertion or whatever. But there's a certain percentage of error that they don't have any control over right now. And if it inserts it in the wrong place, it's a knockout, it's a knock-in, it's unintended consequences and this doesn't really matter much in a laboratory setting where you're just seeing how many how fast does the gene move through these 10,000 mosquitoes over three generations that's fine but once you start letting this waterfall go into the wild the consequences of it are are only that you know that likely this gene will dominate the population in three or four generations. The consequences of off-target insertion or over-insertion or whatever else are wholly unknown. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so is there anybody talking about this besides us, Mark, you know, Mark. No, and in fact, I've made this point before. You know, the guy who invented and perfected a lot of this, um, his last name is Esfelt, and he works at the Media Lab at MIT, was put in front of Congress in 2000, early 2022 or late 2021, along with Ebright and one other character, and made to tell about how dangerous gain-of-function virology was and how he needed tight regulations on it without mentioning these things at all. They put him in front of Congress to tell us the story of virology and why gain-of-function virology is super dangerous, while this guy is both responsible for 
advanced gene drive technologies and the directed evolution strategies that are used in bacterial cultures to enrich functional proteins and stuff, which is also a potentially dangerous or at least a highly classified probably application of, of modern molecular biology. Two things that from the, I think that that was, that term directed evolution was used by that dude in the Pfizer video just to throw people, throw people off and make people think that directed evolution was the same as, as gain of function. And it's totally not. Just to further connect some dots here, Kevin Esveld, I knew I recognized that name. So he's, he's, you know, MIT Media Lab, he's director of this Alt Labs uh, nonprofit. On the board of this thing is George Church, who's the other guy. He, he I think, is the inventor or one of the inventors of CRISPR-Cas9. Um, he, back to Epstein, he was one of the scientists who came under fire for his uh, Epstein funding. So there is this, in, oh, and again, funded by Open Philanthropy. <laughs> it's this incestuous network that just keeps coming up. Uh, yeah, that's, and John Johns Hopkins, of course, Center for Health Security. Yep. Okay, now we're, we're covering a whole lot and we can't do it um, extremely yeah. deeply in, in this amount of time that we're talking, but um, I, I want to throw one more piece into the soup, um, if we can. Uh, and, and that is, uh, I, I, and I have not, you know, like I said, I've been building a business, so I haven't had time to even talk with Kevin McKernan about this plasmid. Um, so I, I guess we're seeing plasmids in the vaccine that maybe shouldn't be there. And I don't, I don't know. I, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, JJ, or ask you to take over where it is that I clearly don't know about the biology yet. Uh, for anybody who, who wants to know, plasmid is basically you've got, you know, a nucleotide sequence, but it wraps around and connects to itself. So you've got like a genetic donut, <laughs> you might say. Um, one of the things that, that I kept running into once I started examining, uh, you know, infectious clone theory and, uh, and bioweapons in general is that for a much longer period of time, than with clones or virus-like particles, U.S. biowarfare experimentation has involved studying the release of bacteria. And so, and I don't know if this is connected or not. This may be a total dead end, and it may be that you know that there's a reason that there's a dead end that I don't. But when I when I hear okay, plasmids, plasmids involved uh, with bacteria with E. coli. Now, okay, there's pathogenic E. coli and non-pathogenic E. coli, but um, is there some chance, like, I, I, I've wondered this whole time, could the thing that, that could, could there be sort of a missing piece where there's a relationship between releasing infectious clones or virus-like particles and having already sort of sprayed down a population as in an Operation Sea Spray with bacteria to create some sort of an interaction? And that interaction may happen um, whether or not, I don't know, the spike protein comes from virus-like particle or comes from a vaccine. And, and, and I'm going to throw one more piece in there because it's just been bouncing around in my brain since I found out about it about three months ago. Um, my wife was reading a book uh, where it talked about how when, when uh, farmers, ranchers, people who raise livestock, 
when they vaccinate their chickens or their cattle, you know what they have to do with their animals right after vaccination? They have to give them antibiotics. Why? And why isn't this more discussed in terms of vaccination of humans in general? Does vaccination open us up to bacterial infections that wouldn't otherwise be there? You know, or that wouldn't otherwise propagate, right? Is there something about that? Okay, you have an adjuvant, it's it's disrupting our systems in order for us to have an immune reaction, but it's also it's disrupting our systems. Well, um, Robert F. Kennedy points out that the rise in food allergies is directly correlated with the rise in the injection schedule of the children. Um, so it is opening up a window, and so it opens up a window for allergies as well. Um, I've thought about this uh, as well. What you're suggesting, um, I think, doesn't even need to be as complicated as releasing bacteria because you have bacteria that are resident in your lungs and in your, in your gut. And so if you could release an agent that would transform those bacteria to express a protein that was toxic or annoying, like a spike protein, then all of the aspects of the molecular biology would be present, um, but they would present in a way that could be distorted as a, as a coronavirus when it wasn't. Um, I think that's a little bit farther okay. scenario, but, but I don't think that's crazy. Um, okay. let, let me ask a question and see if, I, if I'm rewording, rewording this to try to build my own understanding. So bacteria are often processors of viruses often, right? That's part of, that's part of what they're able to do as far as handling their own, you know, ecosystem. So could, they have their own special kind though, right? They make phages and they exchange DNA with phages, which are essentially bacterial viruses. Okay. Could these plasmids then spur or create an interaction with bacteria that are already in us in order to make those bacteria pathogenic? Absolutely. I don't see any reason why they wouldn't. I mean, just the expression of a, a, a immunogenic protein would be enough, right? If you made the bacteria in your lungs express the tetanus toxin, you'd be in trouble. That would be a very easy transformation to do. You could transform your gut to do to do tetanus toxin, and everybody that got that would be dead. I mean, that's a really easy way to do it. Um, well, I I feel like I suddenly feel like this makes more sense to me than a more complicated game of biowarfare, right? If if there are if there are interactions that have been known or observed, if they were even accidentally stumbled upon by biowarfare researchers and call them biodefense, whatever, whatever we might want to call them to, you know, cover up uh, what all they're paying attention to, <laughs> you know, when they run these experiments, could they have at some point recognized that um, these interactions could be spurred? And yeah, I just think the one thing to be very careful about is, is what I've, I've been thinking about this lately as an asymptotic graph. How many cases have to be real? It actually decays asymptotically to about two. The case in Wuhan where they got a sequence and a culture had to be something. And the case in Seattle where they cultured, got an isolate and a sequence probably was something. 
but everything else could have been based on illusion. And so if you just transformed the bacteria in Sinohomish County, man, and transformed the bacteria in a few people in Iran and Wuhan, the same story could be told. And I don't think we could ever differentiate between that scenario and any other, like a clone, because the same thing would happen if you if you released a clone, which essentially transfected the lungs of people to produce the RNA in sufficient quantities to cause distress. Um, because transformation alone, or sorry, transfection alone will bring out the immune response. You could transfect them to anything, but you would transfect them to a sequence that you had already intended to find or use or base for on a background so that you could use the background. That's what I'm arguing. Use the background to your advantage. Now, the additional piece that's, I think, still being ironed out in terms of a thesis or a, a conclusive, you know, result um, from the the, the McKernan um, work here, there was a, an element of uh, antibiotic resistance to the bacterial contaminant found uh, in the samples. Am I right? In addition no, to the plasma? It's a, it's a, so the way that you work it is um, you have a vat full of, of, of E. coli bacteria, and then you put your cDNA plasmid in. And the way that you decide whether bacteria are taking your plasmid and making copies of it is you put a antibiotic resistance gene in your plasmid, and then you use that antibiotic in your culture so that any bacteria that don't take your plasmid end up dying. So then after one round, you've enriched your bacterial culture to only bacteria that are copying your plasmid. And that, that makes the whole thing much more efficient. And that being present is an indication that they didn't take it out because once you translate that to RNA, that plasmid shouldn't be there because it's in a different direction and shouldn't be translated to RNA if it's done correctly. So that's the reason why it's very, very suspicious that that would be there because that's a cassette that really only belongs in the bacterial culture that generates the high quantity of cDNA that then gets translated to the RNA they put in the shot. And if if this is the case, that this is what has been found, that is implications for the gut biome, right? In theory, I mean, it just means that, I mean, I think that what McKernan is arguing is uh, McKernan is arguing is that if that plasmid was present, then in theory, if it got to your gut, it, it's a circular plasmid, so it could be taken up by bacteria and integrated, and that means that they would have an antibiotic resistance and they would have an origin of replication, which means they could start producing spike. Um, and you can run that cartoon all the way to the end, and they could you know release phages and and infect other nearby bacteria or not infect them but transform them in the way that they do normally um i don't know how likely that is from the perspective of an im injection and then getting into your gut flora i think that's pretty rare or pretty unlikely um but i think it's more the pollution of this uh, dna being in there and then the implications for it are many fold including you know all kinds of immune activation that wasn't supposed to happen or was being blamed on, you know, in, included technologies or intended consequences, when in reality, these big immune reactions might just be from contaminants, um, which is also kind of, you know, from a, a multi-billion dollar spending perspective, kind of crappy. 
and an informed consent perspective. Absolutely. From an informed consent perspective, it's devastating. Yep. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, I think the, the the thing that bothers me the most is this this possibility of confusing the public by calling um, calling the spike protein a toxin or calling um, the DNA contaminants as evidence that the shot wasn't good and why it's not good, as opposed to transfection in general being a bad idea. And I'm I'm frustrated by the by the what seems to be a very distinct pattern of people unwilling to say that transfection is just kind of dumb. But this particular example of it might have all kinds of egregious added dumbness. Um, and that's the part that bothers me a lot because I feel like there's a disingenuous disconnect there where almost people are implying that we can get it better next time as opposed to this was a bad idea. And no matter how well we would have done it, it would have been a bad idea. Well, and that's why that's one of the many reasons why I really enjoyed your conversation with Dr. Michael Yeadon, because if I'm not mistaken, he points that out. He yes, says absolutely. the production of any foreign protein will have the same deleterious result. It's yeah. it's the transfection itself. That was yeah. a good sign as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Absolutely. And I, I think that's that's the real baseline biology. Now, are there proteins that would be more or less toxic on that scale? Sure. But but the but the sport is the same, um, and that means that you're playing with autoimmunity. And transfection is really good for for animals that you're not gonna that are not gonna live that long. It's great, you know. You can do lots of stuff with it in an academic setting to try and perturb a system to change the local expression and find out what happens. But as a way of of modifying or augmenting the immune response of a of a human that wants to live healthily for the next twenty or forty or never mind eighty years. It's just beyond absurd. Matt, why do you look so confused? What happened there? What what sent you back in your chair? No, I, I apologize. I, I, I'm, I'm, I have, I'm going off on brain tangents and I disconnected I myself a little bit. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm trying to think and absorb and, and there's, you know, there's a lot of information to process, right? Um, I, I'll tell you what I was thinking about though, was, was why have not, we not seen in three years, we're clearly uh, going through some sort of a process of, carefully moving supply lines away from China and decoupling. And unless it's happening and I haven't heard, and I have looked actually, who is bringing antibiotic production back to the U S right. If, if the U S is, is making moves that could result in a world war. And, and that's the way lots of people are looking at this and talking about it. Right, so there's right. no doubt there's no doubt that that it is an understood risk on that level. Why has nobody said we need antibiotic factories in the U.S. now? And I actually, it's funny when Steve Kirsch was looking for you know like you know uh, hedge fund investments or whatever. I said, look, dude, just invest in a factory to build antibiotics. And he was like, no, nah, I like my way better. <laughs> I mean, that's all he said. Did he have his money in Silicon Valley Bank, by the way? I've been meaning to ask. No idea. Um, <laughs> I, I do know that uh, that in 2021, he had still money with the Rockefeller Institute. Um, but he was he said he was trying to get that away from them. But but one way or another, like I, I would say in anybody who's thinking about investing in a fund of funds in this in this environment where, you know, 
I think we're we're at, at the moment of the Fed pivot, and we're probably going to see the markets just uh, we're going to see a pretty big correction. Um, it seems like a whole lot better bet right now is to find the entre entrepreneur who will build an antibiotic factory because we need that and we need it yesterday. Interesting. <clears throat> I like that idea. Well, not and not only the idea, but does that relate to? Or or we need to make friends. Yeah, or we need to make friends with uh, with India really fast. Why would we? And 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 does this relate to hospitals not using antibiotics as much? Are yeah. they literally hoarding supplies, knowing that it's going to be cut off? Like, what is going on with relationship to the antibiotics? We know that um, fifty percent of the the said COVID deaths are pneumonia deaths, and when you when you begin to scrape away the ones that almost certainly are false positives or, you know, somebody dies in a car crash, not really due to, you know, to COVID. Um, really, the COVID effect that kills people is pneumonia. Primarily. I'm sure some people go through some, you know, organ failures, probably old, you know, immunocompromised people and whatnot. But pneumonia, pneumonia is killing people. So we need to so, make, we need to make, um, Generic antibiotics. We need antibiotics produced in North America, if not here in Mexico, wherever. You know, why aren't we hearing about this? It's it's. I do like the idea that the the transfection is going to make people more vulnerable to bacterial infections because I do think there is data for that. In even, fact, even apparently, regular um, vaccination, yeah, was known to be doing this in animals. Yeah, but the farmers know to give uh, rounds of antibiotics to all the animals right after vaccination. It's an association. Yeah, they're also um, a very couple key um, supplements in, la in uh, livestock that are noticeably absent in all of our messaging. Selenium is so vital for cattle and horses and it's like on a, on a box, you know, it's contains selenium. Um, and nobody talks about that with people, but it's a very, very important cofactor for the immune system and other things. And this um, reminds me, actually, that uh, early on during the, the pandemic, there was research done on selenium relationships mm -hmm. with COVID in China. And I have this in notes, you know, like mostly I was like laying out notes on like vitamin C and vitamin D and, and right. Whatnot, right. But but selenium is one of the ones where they tested people's hair samples in Wuhan and other places in China and found that people who were selenium de deficient were more likely to to get in trouble with COVID. So, mm -hmm. you know, antibiotics, people. And if you're an entrepreneur out there, or if you know one, you know, reach out to somebody who's a medical entrepreneur. Seriously, like like rare rare minerals and uh and antibiotics it's really defense wins ball games and that's that's we're right back to defense where wins ball games with that i mean you've got to fortify your immune system everybody was was unhealthy to begin with and there may have been even certain uh, vulnerabilities engineered into us um for sure interesting i'm so glad you brought this back to defense wins ball games because that was <laughs> That was a joke between uh, me and JJ and Liam. That was just uh, random out of thin air one day. But uh, but but it, it might be a motto of these conversations. So let's think that way, people. Defense yeah. wins ball games. You know, um, 
even if we're not told what's going on, even if we're not told the truth, we may have defenses and antibiotics may be one of them. I love um, it. So should should we uh, should we move toward a wrap up here? We've been going this this went by very quickly. Gosh, yeah, it's good. I like this conversation a lot. It was fun for almost an hour and a half, and we covered a whole lot of ground. And I hope it helps develop other conversations also. Um, but you know, look, you know, people, whichever pieces you see of this, there's a lot of nonsense going on, and anybody who isn't breaking down or or giving us a very good answer for what appears to be nonsense um, probably is not the person who deserves your whole trust. Uh, I'm just going to put it that way. So, you know, there we are, move towards solutions, be discerning in your judgment, keep researching. Uh, and thanks for, for uh, JJ, thanks for joining us again to, to help us walk through some of this stuff. Yeah, um, I'm going to see if I, if I can get Kevin on here sometime soon um, and, and talk through that piece because um you know, I, I'm still not uh, uh, up up to speed on my plasmid biology. That's oh, good. I think you should have him on there. He's uh, he needs somebody to drag him out of the clouds there and get it down to gas station attended level biology again. Yeah, Mark <laughs> had a good rant about that. To be uh, to be frank, um, yeah. JJ, you are uh, as we alluded to at the beginning. You're uh, in a time where. Um, there are, there are heavier hitters who are turning their attention to you. You're getting a chance to um, present, uh, as, as you said, the biology uh, to them the way that you believe everyone should uh, at least uh, have a chance to learn it. Um, can you give us uh, just an overview? What are you focusing on right now? What's the, what campaign are you engaging in? What are your goals um, and what should people know? What should people be paying attention to? Well, thanks. I'm really trying right now to get people to have the open mind um, enough to first grasp the idea that that it may have been an orchestrated theater to get everybody to believe that it was a lab leak left and right. Um, but more importantly, I think recently it's trying to get people to understand how this technology of infectious RNA clones has been used to enable the study of RNA viruses across the board and is in fact so ubiquitous in terms of understanding RNA viruses that you might say that that using synthetic RNA clones is is sort of the basis for our understanding of whatever the natural form is and that understanding has been contorted in such a way to control people in secret meetings to move billions of dollars and I think um, in order to create the possibility where a, a pandemic is a, is a reason and a, and a framework from which to govern us. Um, and I think what, what happens with people is the, the narrative was so seductive that we were, we were all allowed to figure it out. And it feels very empowering, but it's a trick. Um, and the the way, the way to solve this problem, I believe, and I think it's happening to Michael Eden. Michael Eden is going to come back on my show on the 29th or on the 1st, uh, or 31st or the 1st, um, because the idea of what infectious clones can and can't do um, and the idea of what a natural virus can and can't do is starting to sink into his head. And what I think is also important and what's sinking into Mike's head is that People have to be fooled. There cannot be 
thousands and thousands of liars working together. That's not possible. There have to be the vast majority of the people that are involved in this theater have to be fooled. They have to believe what they're doing. I think Rochelle Walensky believes everything she says. I think Tony Fauci believes almost everything he says. But I don't think that all of the virologists don't know. I think a lot of virologists know. And I think the ones that know are at the head of U.S. Amarid. They're at the head of DITRA. They are at the, the head of the organizations like HHS and other organizations which are involved in the actual orchestration um, and using the, the viral narrative um, um, against us. Those people that are actually working on AIDS for 20 years really believe that they're working on AIDS and that the data is real because they haven't become aware of this, this, this disconnect. And, and I think that by showing people over and over again the usefulness of clones and how they have replaced, you know, the, the or, or you can't culture them. That's the reason why we were talking about the Washington man for so long. It's unique because look through the papers. I challenge all the viewers of Rounding the Earth, look for a paper where they take a patient sample and they are able to culture it and get a sequence. You won't find more than two. And the whole pandemic is based on those two incidences where in Wuhan, two wells out of 96 showed cytopathic effects. And one of those wells was sequenced. And that's where the sequence comes from. That's it. And in this Washington one, they passaged it four times. They sequenced it and they based everything off of it, including the model, including the ACE2 receptor model, including vaccine sequences and including PCR sequences. And then we never really bothered to culture the virus ever again. Never again. Okay, well, remind me to have a conversation about sequencing and uh, and nanopore sequencing because now I'm actually wondering if if you could um, you know sort of fool a culturing of, of you know have a coronavirus that has nothing to do with SARS-CoV-2 and have something else contaminate that to make it appear to have one of these sequences. Now that I know how many few times this has been done. Um, so, but we'll have, we'll, we'll save that for another time because we've already gone an hour and a half here and, uh, and I'll want to think through that conversation before you and I have it. Cause I'm always catching up with the biology or catching up little bits. And, and in the meantime, I highly encourage everybody, if you haven't yet to go and watch, say just these last five videos that Jay has done. Say really just the one that's watched 12,000 times, the one with Paul Alexander, because there's two sequences in that video where I just teach exactly what needs to be taught, the clone and then the swarm and the infectious cycle. So the one that's viewed, yeah, that one there, that's the best one. Okay, and I put the link, it's twitch.tv slash gigaohmbiological. I put that in all of the comments, uh, comment streams for the platform. So everybody go do that. And as far as we're concerned, everybody should go over, if you haven't yet, join roundingtheearth.locals.com. Um, we set community goals for, for how many people we want to have joined us by given times, and we continue to beat our goals. Uh, we now have 650 members, which we were planning to get by the end of this month so thank you so much to everybody wow. who has joined us over there and that includes uh that's not just paid members that's people who have chosen to join us to just come and be part of the community um and and keep up with what we're doing but and, as you can and, see 
we've had a robust group of people who have been um, chatting with us this entire time, contributing to the chat and even helping us direct where this chat goes. So roundingtheearth.locals.com is the best place to go. Hey, and you can also support us you, there. Sorry, I, 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 since you've got that up, um, you know, we, I, I've got over 30,000, you know, sub, Substack subscribers uh, who read my Substack, but scroll down so that people see what it means that there are a number of us chatting in the community. Uh, scroll past that. That's like the one time I've thrown an advertisement. Yeah, yeah. For, Good timing. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it, it's not like uh, advertising spam or anything like that. But, you know, um, you can see, um, you know, and and sometimes there will be, you know, conversations, uh, you know, that grow up. As the community gets larger, the conversations, I'm sure, will get, you know, deeper and longer. They usually focus around these streams, of course. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of topics that people throw out. And then, um, you know, everybody can can kind of dig in and it, it's a, it's just it's more interactive than Substack. So for people who want to, you know, be part of a sort of a discussion community on on pandemic topics, economic topics, you know, education topics, all the things that, that we discuss. Um, yeah, yeah, locals is a good place to be. And I, I've been trying to poke JJ like you, you should open a locals channel. Because uh, I, I do think that it is, um, you know, for what you're doing with with Twitch, for uh, for instance, um, I think that it may, you know, help you uh, monetize your work better. And I think it deserves to be monetized, but not as many people reach out when there's not a clear channel for how to do that. But anyhow, anyhow, that's that's my poke with JJ for the day. JJ, thanks again for joining us. Um, no problem. You know, it's, it's always educational. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. It helps me a lot, too. Well, Jay, you're one of my favorite people to learn from, and I cannot wait for your next stream. When is your next stream? Is that today? Um, it's probably not going to be today because I was working very hard. I got I got sidetracked. I was supposed to do my Star Trek one last week, and then Paul came and, and arranged Michael, and so everything got sidetracked. And I really want to get the first episode out of this, so I'm probably going to work on this today. And if, I, if it fires off tonight, I'll be very surprised, but... Um, I'm really close. I just need to record a few more things and 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 grow a pair, and then I'm gonna go. Well, if, if worse comes to worse, we can throw that guy up on screen for an hour, and uh, yeah. that'll be more than satisfactory. <laughs> now I'm really excited. I think this um, Star Trek thing is uh, is gonna be a nice way for me to get back on YouTube, and I've been putting a lot of thought into it, and it just all came together a couple of weeks ago. Now I think I have everything that I wanted and I got the ears that match my skin. So it'll be perfect. I'm excited. Very cool. I'll say hi to YouTube for us. Yeah, I will. I will. We'll see how long I last. All right. On that note, thank you all again. And we'll see you very shortly.